to Northwest Prime, bringing Seattle to the world and the world to Seattle. I'm your host, Lori Ness, a soldier on the front line of the mainstream. You can listen to this and other shows at northwestprime.com and be sure to stay with Seattle Wave Radio 24-7-365 for more great music and interviews. We're starting a movement of kindness and we want you to join up. Let's get this show started. Long before Harry Potter or the Fifty Shades of Grey, there was the global blockbuster series Outlander. Now in its TV adaptation and a ninth book in the works, the woman behind this phenomenon is none other than my guest today, Dr. Diana Gabaldon. So thank you, Dr. Gabaldon, for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Lori. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I wanted to first congratulate you not only on the success of your book series, but also its popularity that's translated over to the TV adaptation on stars. And it must be rewarding seeing the cast become household names and winning awards and being embraced by your fandom. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, they've done just a magnificent job with adapting the show. And uh, the actors are just, uh, well, they're, they're all wonderful people, but they're wonderful actors. And uh, yeah, it's a huge pleasure to see them succeed so quickly and so well. Well, everybody's talking about Sam, and it appears that he is genuine as he comes across on screen as he is in real life. Is it, Has that been your kind of feeling on it? Yes, it has. I've uh, I've known him since uh, the day after he was cast, essentially. And uh, after seeing his audition, I was completely blown away and very excited. So I went to look to see if you know if there was if he had a presence online, so to speak. And uh, there he was on Twitter. You know, he had a Twitter feed, and he was just talking about uh, having a new job. He was going to Norway to film this uh, this short pod film called Heart of Lightness. And um, so I immediately followed him, and then I. I uh, just slipped in a comment in his stream and said, nice one, man, you know, meaning the audition. But, and he saw me, and 30 seconds later, there he is in my direct message. As he's crying, oh, I love your book. This is wonderful. And I was saying, oh, I love your audition. This is great. So it was sort of mutual admiration from the, uh, the very beginning. And yeah, we've just got on really well. He's a lovely, lovely man. Well, I thought it was really a coincidence that really your first male character birth Jamie is being played by somebody named Sam and your son's named Sam. And because my son is only a couple of years younger than, uh, than Sam Ewan, and he's also an immense young man. And uh, yeah, so as it is, I uh, actually call Sam Ewan Schultz because I can't bring myself to call it Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was at San Diego's Comic-Con this year, and there was only two things that people were talking about. Nothing else. Well, they were talking about the heat and the crowds. But other than that, they were talking about... Game of Thrones and Outlander. Everybody was talking, couldn't even get into the Outlander panel. Um, Comic-Con was just, there were so many people. Everybody was so excited. Um, after, in, in the in the night hours, people were trying to find the Outlander people. Um, they were dressing, there were all kinds of fans dressed like Outlander people. I mean, the city was just really filled with, um, with, with your fans who had come and droves to meet the cast. They were being revealed at Comic-Con for you know people to really see them up front and close. Had you been to Comic-Con before? And what was your experience like? 
Well, I've not been to San Diego before. I've been to the New York Comic Con several times and to uh, Phoenix Comic Con, which is a very good but smaller uh, gathering. So I was pretty much expecting what San Diego is like. It's just you know, a Comic-Con, but really, really big and with a lot of, you know, good technical effects. But yeah, it was a wonderful vibe. We had a marvelous premiere there. It was, it was just great. It was very funny. We had this pair of enormous bouncers. They were, I kid you not, seven foot four each and about 400 pounds. And they accompanied us everywhere. Not that, you know, we never encountered any situation where we truly needed them, but uh, we were... Uh, Visited in the uh, in the theater just before the premiere, and uh, my eldest daughter and her husband and my son had uh, come to the premiere. My Sam was sitting next to me and was animatedly discussing what happened outside the theater and telling me stories. Anyway, as I say, my son is quite large. He's 6'5". <laughs> so, and uh, as he's telling me this with animated gestures, suddenly one of the bouncers looms up by my shoulder and he says, oh, if you feel threatened at any point, ma'am, just raise your hand. <laughs> and I said, that's fine. I know him. <laughs> <laughs> I know him real well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, you know, your fandom, it's very interesting to me because you have, and it was apparent to me at Comic-Con, but there was a lot of men attracted to your fandom and in your fandom. And just from the out appearance, one might think if, if they hadn't really read the books, um, and I know that you have a very seasoned fandom and, 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 but, but there's new fans coming in with, with a TV adaptation. So um, there, a lot of them think that it's a romance, but it's not, it's so much more. In fact, this series really can't even be defined on what it is. Well, that's kind of the trouble, you know, and that it, it truly can't. It, uh, but it does have a you know, very powerful love story at the heart of it, especially the first book, so to speak. And, you know, if you are a marketing person and you're looking at this book or the show or whatever, and you are trying to describe it for marketing purposes, either you end up with a long chain of adjectives, well, it's a sci-fi historical uh, adventure romance story, which is how Swan.com magazine described it, and uh, they're just about right. But, you know, you say that, people say, well, this sounds weird. I don't think I want to read something that you, you can't even describe. And uh, so they'll, they'll usually try to fix on one of those adjectives. They'll say, oh, it's, it's historical fiction, which is totally true. It's just that there's time travel in it. <laughs> or they'll say, oh, it's, in this, it's a fantasy series and so forth, which is why I've gone to comic cons, because they're often sold as fantasy. Or they'll say, oh, it's romance, which is fine in that uh, – it's not exactly wrong, <laughs> as you say, it's just a whole lot more. But the thing mm -hmm. about romance is that while it has, uh, as a genre, very huge, uh, dedicated, very literate fan base, uh, it is a genre also that causes some people to say, oh, I don't read that kind of book, both male and female. And uh, the thing is that people of that sort who would say, I don't read that sort of book, they probably would read my kind of book because it's, it's actually not a standard romance novel. No, it's it's so much more. There's something for everybody. And I was discussing this with some friends of mine who are uh, a husband and wife co-author, Morgan and Jennifer Locklear, and they live um, in the Portland area. And they were reading these books at mm -hmm. um, together as a husband and wife. And Morgan starts to tell me, he's like, oh, I, I said, Morgan, I said, you're into these books? And he says, I'm an outmander. And I said, 
what's an outmander? And he said, outmanders are men who read Outlander and they're, we're global and we're everywhere. And we're, you know, we're a, a, a com- becoming a force in this fandom. And I'm like, I've never even heard of such a thing. And he's like, well, you need to look into it. And sure enough, they're on Twitter at the outmanders. They have a website um, and it's drawing these men in. I think weapons and battles, men of course love all that. And then there's so much TV that that women and men, husband and wives, partners cannot watch together. But with with the Outlander series, it's satisfying both because you have the women who love Jamie and Sam and they love the romance between Jamie and Claire. And then you have all this other stuff going on that attracts men, obviously. Yes, it does. Yeah, though, interestingly enough, you know, uh, it, it's actually very, very gender equal between the leads, I might say. Uh, yes, the women do love uh, Jamie and Sam, but they are equally passionate about Claire and uh, Katrina, who just does a, a magnificent job of embodying Claire. You know, as, as I told the Television Critics Association last January about it, I said they all want to be Claire. And then gesturing to Sam, who was sitting to my left, I said to him, they kind of want a lick which is true, but uh, they're both fantastic actors. The thing is that men uh, like Jamie as much as women do, though, for totally different reasons. Um, well, he's a man's man. Yeah, he is, and they, they identify with him. The books are particularly uh, popular with service men uh, and, and service women as well, but uh, I get a lot of fan mail from, uh, from soldiers and sailors, uh, because of the long deployments and so forth, often they go looking for the biggest book they can find, and often enough it's one of mine. So they'll get to where they're, to Afghanistan or where they're going, and having finished the book on the plane, will call their beloveds and say, hey, send me the rest of the series. And they will then be reading it to their platoon members. But mm-hmm. uh, they identify with Jamie because, uh, to their minds, he's fighting for the same things they are. And, you know, he's a warrior. They understand him, and, uh, and they admire him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, it reminds me, I, I participate in a Books for Troops uh, campaign uh, uh, yearly. And last year we were taking the books in because this is about the time that they go out. And I do remember seeing now, now that you say that, an awful lot of Outlander books that had been uh, donated by Random House. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of books that um, that that kind of come in, but I remember seeing a big, a whole bunch of Outlander, and I didn't think of that until you you just talked about the the, the troops. But I, I did see them participating and them being donated from Random House, uh, I believe, through the Books for Troops program. So yeah. thank you for that. Oh, we're very happy to participate. How are you able to so authentically write your male characters um, and and have such a masculine voice that that you give them as a woman? Um, I like men. Uh, not all women do, <laughs> but I do. Uh, you know, I appreciate them for what they are rather than, you know, what they might be expected to be, so to be. Uh, the thing is, I was a scientist in my previous incarnation. I've got, you know, sort of degrees in the biological sciences. And as a result, all of my close friends and colleagues up until the time I was 40 or so were men. You know, I, I worked with them. They were all, they were my uh, good friends. And, you know, consequently, I know a lot about them. I've also, you know, had my husband for the last 40 two years, so I have a specimen at close range, <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, he's a very good man. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that, because your family, and especially your children, have probably really grown up with Claire and Jamie being a part of your family, and do, do, do you think of Claire and Jamie as as extended family members? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, it, 
that you know, I get a lot of questions about the characters on the show and what do you think of this? How did you get this person? And where did this person come from? And so forth. And, you know, the bottom line is that they're all me. You know, uh, that's so I, I don't actually see them as being external to me. They are just you know people that I that I know closely, but I don't regard them as being separate from myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm using one of their viewpoints, I'm actually living inside that person for as long as it takes. And uh, consequently, you know, you discover things about these people in the in the course of, you know, writing and, and so forth. I don't plan books ahead of time. I don't write with an outline. I just, uh, you know, find a little kernel, as I call it, which is um, image, a line of dialogue, something I can write about and uh, concretely. I write that and then I work to and fro very slowly, just, you know, figuring out where are we, what's going on type of day. Is it how is the light falling? Is there someone in the room with me? Now my fingers are cold, but my feet are warm. There must be a fire in here, that sort of thing. It's just, uh, you know, very vague and organic to, to describe how it's done. But uh, maybe the best I can do is describing me and the character relationships is uh, to tell you about Black Jack Randall, the a group of local fans who take me to tea once a year to uh, take my brains about the books. And on one of these occasions, they got started on Black Jack Randall. They were going, oh, he's so loathsome, he's such scum. He reminds me, he disgusts me, he makes my skin crawl. And I'm sitting there sipping my Earl Grey and thinking, you have no idea that you're talking to Black Jack Randall, do you? (laughs) (laughs) You never do, but, you know, where else did he come from? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I must say, the actor who plays him does an outstanding job of... just wonderful. <laughs> mm-hmm. He does a fantastic job. Are, are you considering at all writing a book at some point and and delving into that Randall family? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just depends on who talks to me and what I see. Uh, at the moment, I have a you know just a very vague apprehension of what they're what they're like. Um, now, I should mention that there is a third Randall brother, Edward Randall, the eldest, and we might actually meet him in the course of the events. I don't know for sure, but if we do, we'll probably find out a whole lot more about the Randalls at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, th- I'm sure people would love. I mean, they they want anything that they can get your um, their hands on that you're writing. When, when you're writing, do you sometimes listen to music, or is music out? Do you you mentioned drinking tea. Do you drink coffee or are you a tea person? Um, I drink tea, but usually only if the weather's very cold or if I'm sick. <laughs> what I run on is Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I like Diet Coke, too, as well. Uh, yeah, and then people keep saying, oh, you know, don't you know, this is poison and she'll go blind. And that's better. And it's toxic chemicals. Do it. <laughs> I've been drinking it for 30 years and, you know, no well effect yet. When did you realize that your book was a, a hit because you did have a day job that you, that you mentioned. You're you're very successful in, in your job. So to leave had to you 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 had to know it at some point that you could make that leap. When did that really kind of come to fruition in in your in your thinking? Well, it uh, became possible from the day my agent sold the books because uh, he rather fortunately he sent it out to five editors who he thought might like it, and within four days three of them had called back to. Uh, with offers to buy it. Uh, so he negotiated amongst them for two weeks and emerged a three book contract with, you know, very, very healthy advances for, for the various books. So uh, I was rather flabbergasted at that. Uh, the bottom line is that I've always known that I was meant to be a writer. And, you know, so when 
we sold the book immediately and I wasn't so reckless as to quit my day job immediately because there's other aspects to writing for a living. The unpredictability of your income is one of them. It takes about five years for your income to reach some sort of level where you can say with big certainty, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to eat this year. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whether you get big advances or small ones, it just takes a while. It's very up and down. And there's long lags in publishing where you don't get paid and, uh, and so forth. But given the, the size of the advance, I could have stopped work immediately. I didn't, though, because of these considerations. And also, you know, I was, I was doing something in my job. I'm going to finish it. But uh, my, I was on a soft money contract, which means that my contract was renewed each year. I didn't have tenure. I was a research professor. And uh, my contract came up for renewal uh, about the same time that I was uh, finishing my second book. And uh, I said to my husband, you know, we won't starve if I quit. I think it would be nice to see what it's like to sleep more than four hours to stretch. So that's basically when and why I quit, <laughs> quit the scientific world. Mm-hmm. And, and and you've never had to look back on and and lucky for all of us, because we have this wonderful story that keep, that's, keeps living on and we're all able to enjoy that. What did little girl Diana look like? What did she read and, and what was she thinking and dreaming about? Oh, I read from the time, well, I learned to read when I was about three, you know, and uh, basically spent my entire childhood immersed in books. You know, I'm sort of a happy introvert. I, I require solitude. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I've become uh, able to enjoy the company of my fellow man to a much greater extent than I did when I was a child. But, uh, but you know, I'm still a very solitary sort of person. And, you know, I love to read. Uh, social media keeps me very well connected to mm-hmm. uh, the fandom and so forth. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I lived in the world of books and imagination. And uh, as I say, I've known from the age of eight that, that that's where I was meant to live. <laughs> do do you still find time to read or, or is it is that a, a luxury that's not often afforded? If it was, I wouldn't uh, be doing what I'm doing now. No, I, I read all the time, regardless of what's going on. You know, I read while I'm cooking dinner. I read when I take the dogs out back, you know, stand under a tree and read while they hunt toads or whatever they're up to. Yeah, no, I, I probably read two or three books a week. Wow. Wow. That's that's a lot. You're you're a very busy woman, writing and reading and, and your fandom. And we talked about this for a second off air, but you have a very seasoned fandom. They've been around a long time. <laughs> the, the first book came out in 91. They've grown up with you. I've heard them say I started reading these books at 13 or 14, and, and now they're mm-hmm. you know married women and, and, and men. Um, so, so your fandom is... Um, and of course, there's new people coming into the fandom every day with with the TV series and then discovering the books. But, but your fandom's really grown with you and grown up with you. Yeah, no, it has. Uh, yeah, they have been always with me. And, you know, it's not at all uncommon for me to have trios at my signing events, you know, grandfather, daughter, and, and granddaughter, or, you know, uh, uh, grandmother, uh, a daughter, and a son, something like that. Uh, but we have a, a nice mix. <laughs> the youngest fan from whom I've ever gotten a letter was 10, and the eldest was 96. <laughs> as, as you noted, uh, they're fairly well distributed between the, well, I was about to say among the genders, maybe that's correct too, because we do in fact have quite a number of, of fans from the LGBT community as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, if you search Outlander on Twitter or Facebook, you find communities, Outlander communities, from all over the from the globe, Italy and Spain and Argentina and New Zealand and uh, just 
everywhere and every topic i saw the outlander kitchen we i we talked about the outmanders um we th there's so many everything you could possibly think of and i'm sure there's new things coming up every day um but is is covered on on social media they're talking about every inch of of what's happening in not only on tv but in the books as well yeah, no, uh, well, the books are very big, they're very complex and richly detailed. They uh, they kind of lend themselves to rereading and discussion and, oh, did you see that? What do you think she meant by that <laughs> sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and dissecting it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm fascinated. The other interesting thing about this uh, phenomenon, uh, for lack of a better word, is the way that it seems to stimulate creativity in the people who uh, are fans and read the books. You know, there are just vast armies of people who, you know, suddenly spring to life doing outlander crafts or paintings, or I've had fans write symphonies based on outlander, and, uh, you know, and uh, it's just amazing the sorts of things they do. People bring me handmade pans, which were inspired, you know, by some character, and, and you know, it's just, just that having read the books they're kind of on fire you know they either want to live an 18th century life or at least you know learn how to how to uh, do botanical or, or do botanical medicine or things like that so you know it, it, it's really nice you know that they seem to take something from the books they don't just you know sit there and passively enjoy them they enjoy them really actively <laughs> you're right no it is a very interactive community um there's a lot of podcasts that's devoted to um, Outlander. I saw, just like you were saying, paintings coming across my timeline, uh, hand drawings, uh, recipes, kilts, you name it. It's all there. So, yes, it, it is this creativity flowing through that fandom, uh, you know, that's really goes back a long way and th these th this isn't this fandom's first rodeo by by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> these guys have it down yeah uh -huh. but it's wonderful how many people are coming to the to the show and you know that's often to the books because they hit episode eight they're like what happened next <laughs> i can't wait mm -hmm. and so they run out and get the get the book and uh, they most of them will have had the entire series read more than once <laughs> before april in the second half of the show <laughs> I bet. Yes. Um, did Did you know there was going to be this gap, the eight episodes, and then and then this hiatus, and then another eight episodes? Well, yes, I, I knew that, but I mean, the stars told me that when they made the decision, and and you know, obviously, that's that's their business to impart to the fans. So I didn't say anything until they did. Yeah, it's called Droughtlander on uh, on social media because everybody's just waiting on, you know, bated breath for April to come around when the next eight. And so it, it has a term now called Droughtlander. Um, you probably know that. <laughs> yes, uh, know. <laughs> they, they, they've coined it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this yeah, waiting. No, they, they do all kinds of, uh, of you know, plays on words. The creativity just extends immensely. You know, people who are disgruntled by the hiatus are called Poutlanders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure why, what all the business decisions for stars deciding to have such a long hiatus were. Someone suggested that it might be to get additional Golden Globes exposure and that that way the show is being actually shown in two calendar years and that's has eligibility in both mm -hmm. years as a, as a new show. But, you know, that's, that's totally stars' business. Uh, mm -hmm. People offer mm -hmm. to me and say, oh, why are you making us wait? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I have absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the scheduling right. or any of that. My uh, relationship with 
with the show, other than having provided the raw material, is that I'm a consultant, which means that they uh, they very kindly show me scripts and they show me daily footage, and they invite my uh, my comment and they ask me the occasional question. Uh, for instance, they needed to start the filming in October of 2013 because, <laughs> you know, casting issues. We have the people now. We have the facilities. We need to get going. You know, we can't just keep everyone sitting around here for six months waiting for Belfay. <laughs> and so they uh, they wrote, said, well, you know, would there be a technical problem if we had the story begin in October rather than in April? You know, would it interfere with any of the major storylines? I thought about it. And I said, well, really, no. The only thing that uh, that you couldn't do would be to show the haymaking in August at Lollybrock because they wouldn't be there then. I mean, it wouldn't be August when they were there. But I said, you know, the haymaking is, you know, probably not important plot-wise. <laughs> so, uh, so we agreed that it would work fine. And in fact, it has worked fine. They, you can easily substitute Salin for uh, for Beltane in terms of a Celtic fire feast. It works equally well for the summoning of ghosts. Well, we would probably trade haymaking in the literal speech for haymaking in the figurative speech with um, <laughs> Jamie and Claire. <laughs> <I think so>. <laughs> <laughs> More of that, less in the field. Um, people seem really shocked by your ability to embrace the adaptation in its from book to TV and that you enjoy seeing the artist's interpretation of these characters. I, I, I heard a lot of people seem like they were kind of surprised that, that maybe you weren't more uh, controlling maybe over that process. <laughs> well, for one thing, there's a limit to how controlling you can be given that you have no control. Uh, but no, essentially, I understand what adaptation to a visual medium means. And also, uh, Ron Moore and his production partner, Merrill Davis, uh, were wise enough to come out to my house in Scottsdale and spend two days with me before they took their pilot script to pitch to the networks. And uh, we spent the time just talking through... Uh, the ideas of, of the books and adaptation, storylines, backstory, characters, where were they going? What was I thinking of doing with them in future? This is kind of what we had in mind here. And, you know, this is why we need to consider this and sort of thing. And we were very much on the same wavelength. Uh, but also, you know, I, I have plays to write comic books for Walt Disney, amongst other things. I understand how you tell a story in visual images, and it's different than the way you do it in text. Uh, so I was expecting quite a bit of adaptation there. Um, but also, you have to consider what the form is in a book. You know, the author is absolutely God. I have as much room as I want to take. I can um, structure it in any way that I want, as long as it is satisfying to the reader. But, you know, I can have a peak here. I can wait, you know, 48 pages for the next climax. <laughs> and, you know, I could maybe have a lull here as long as interesting things are going on in it. Those are things you can't do in a TV show. A television show has a very strict constraint. You have a 55-minute episode, which has to be satisfying on its own. That episode has to constitute uh, an entire short story, if you will. It has to have thematically connected material, and it has to have a satisfying story arc. It doesn't matter if it ends with a cliffhanger, but it has to be a good arc. Um, now, this means that uh, the book is not, of course, divided up into tiny little arcs like that. The book has these huge sweeping, you know, uh, climbs to a, a stunning climax and then comes down to a, a more breathable level and then it goes up again. Uh, but it could be quite a long time between those climaxes. And so, you know, I never, ever expected the book to be a literal page-to-page -page translation. Most people do. Uh, I have for years had people saying, oh, I want to see a, a movie made of your book, but I want it to be just the way it is in the book, to which I would always reply. Uh, yeah, which 40 pages do you want? <laughs> 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 if you were 
making that sort of translation. So, you know, the thing is the adaptation has to take all of the recognizable elements and, you know, a, good, a very good part of the dialogue is, is in their show and restructure it into these little 55-minute, uh, you know, semi-circular arcs. Now, those arcs in themselves also have an overarching story arc that goes from the beginning to the end of the show. And that arc actually follows the arc of the book quite well. But in order to achieve, you know, this dramatic unity within episodes and between episodes, uh, they naturally need to move some of the incidents around. So you will often see a, a scene that you recognize or a scene that you recognize, but it's not where you expected it to be. It will have been moved slightly out of its original chronology in order to uh, contribute to the thematic unity of this particular episode. But then they always return to the original flow of the story. Uh, and to do that, they will interpolate these small uh, new bits, which is fascinating. So, you know, I naturally know how the story goes, but at the same time, because of this adaptation and interpolation, I watched the uh, the daily footage and the, and the cut episodes with uh, absolute fascination because there's a sense of novelty and discovery about it, which I think carries over to the fans of the books, too. I've told the fans all along, I said, look, if you're going to watch the show with a book in your hand making comparisons, you're not going to enjoy either one. If I put the book down, enjoy the show, then you can go back and re-enjoy the book. And it's not going to detract either one from the other. In fact, they uh, have an additive effect. Right. You always, always have the book. It it seems like to me that on, on the TV show that the that there might be some surprises as as to how the fans uh, pick different characters and their likability. I mean, we knew they were going to love Sam. We knew they were going to love Kate. We knew that whole Jamie and Claire. But they really also like Mrs. Fitz a lot. Yeah. And has has yeah. there been any surprises that, that kind of came along with with the TV that uh, adaptation that that caught on to fans that, that that maybe you didn't see coming? Well, I was uh, impressed at uh, the response to Frank Randall because for years and years, you know, people have tended either to be dismissive of Frank or you know outright hate him. And I think this is because they had problems with Claire's divided loyalty and the moral ambiguity of being in love with two men. And in order to you know uh, accommodate that comfortably in their own psyche, they would say, "Oh, he's a cheating philanderer. He's a skunk." And you know, and you know, she's much better off with Amy. You'll forget Frank. We don't want to hear anything about Frank. You know? And uh, at the same time, you know, if you actually read the book with a with an open mind, so to speak, and you can accommodate moral ambiguity. It's apparent that she does love Frank, you know, that he is, you know, a very good, honorable man, that he loves her deeply, and he is, in fact, a deeply tragic figure, you know, none of this was his fault. <laughs> and, uh, and also, they point out to them, you don't know that he was cheating on her, she thinks so, but uh, you don't know that that's true. Well, the book, uh, you know, has to, can only spend very limited amounts of time with Frank, because she's gone to the 18th century, and the book is in entirely in Claire's first-person narration. We never go back to Frank. We have no idea what he was doing until we get to Voyager and see a bit of his flashback. But uh, in the show, of course, you can accommodate a lot of viewpoints. In fact, it can't be told just in one person's viewpoint, a visual image. a visual show, visual medium, always has simultaneous viewpoints. Anyone who's speaking has a viewpoint, so to speak, anyone who's in the scene. You may follow one character as your camera focus from scene to scene, as they do with both the... Um, 
Jamie and Claire, but anyone who's in the scene, you know, is, is as much a viewpoint character as anyone else. Um, so there's a great deal more of Frank in the show because Ron said, you know, we also have the problem of time lag. Someone's reading the book. They're reading it straight through, you know, page to page to page to page. There's no break in the in consciousness. There is with a weekly television show. So we have to make Frank a, a strong enough character, make him seem sufficiently important to Claire that we maintain her conflict between these two men up to the point where she makes her decision. And uh, to that end, they included uh, quite a bit of new material written for Frank. And this is stuff that, you know, he was doing after she disappeared, uh, you know, being frantic, looking for her, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this in turn makes Frank seem like a much more well-rounded, three-dimensional character uh, to those readers who are inclined to just dismiss him. And it also makes him quite likable. Um, he, he was a likable man. And many of them are quite surprised to find that they actually like Frank. And they, they feel very guilty about that because you know, they are rooting for Jamie. And, you know, how can mm-hmm. you do that like Frank at the same time? Well, see, this is one of the central conflicts of the books. How can you do that? Because it's what Claire is required to do. <laughs> right. Because right now, kind of in the beginning, we really are able to feel her conflict because we, we, we see Frank. He just, like you said, he just doesn't disappear. So we're kind of faced with him and he is a good guy. And so you are kind of, you're, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you feel like you're doing something bad. It's like, is somebody watching? Am I rooting for Frank? Am I rooting for Jamie? Of course, you know, yeah. they're both, both men do such a good job as, as does um, Kate in the middle of this love triangle, but yeah, they, they do think. such a great job of pulling this emotion through the screen and, and right into your psyche. Oh, they're just marvelous. Well, it's a wonderful script. We're blessed with a marvelous team of writers who have just done a wonderful job of adaptation. I particularly love the wedding episode. I mean, everybody does, but not merely for the uh, you know the obvious, uh, which is you know largely taken straight from the books. But what Anne Kenny did with that episode overall, with the little flashbacks into Jamie's preparations, you know, the conversation amongst the men beforehand, and then uh, the finding of the wedding dress and the ring, and you know the the dragooning of the of the priest which I thought was just hilarious. Anyway, uh, that structure, which breaks up what in the book is a very long uh, wedding night punctuated with conversation and, and things like that. It works just fantastically. It's very, very entertaining and uh, you know, deeply satisfying. And yet people who have read the book, you know, recognize what's going on immediately. They feel, yes, I've, I've read this, you know, in, in spite of the fact that there is this new material, which you're now seeing. <laughs> Well, and once you've read the book, you you, you kind of can read between the lines and fill in all those little minor details and major details maybe that were left out of the TV. I mean, you have that yeah. that wealth of knowledge behind you so that your imagination can kind of fill in those gaps. Well, absolutely. Yeah, no, the reader's imagination is the most powerful tool that a writer has. <laughs> The the music on this show is fantastic as well. The theme music is really almost a character in, in the show, just as Scotland is is another character in the show. They did a really great job on on that on that music. And now it's it's kind of it's very identifiable with mm-hmm. with Outlander. Yeah, no, Bear McCreary is just a, a fabulous musician. And uh, fortunately, he had a, a deep emotional connection to the uh, the Scotland and, and Jacobites and so forth. In fact, Ron told me that when he was talking to Bear about this, Bear kind of lighted up and said, Jacobites, I wrote my dissertation on the Jacobites. <laughs> so he's very, very into the traditional music. And uh, so he kind of had that available to him when he began work on the show. And it's, it is just a fantastic job of, uh, of composition, you know, it's a 
they do show me the daily footage, as I say, but it's always a thrill when I finally get an assembled episode because that has the music with it as well, and it adds a, you know, a stunning dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and you know, we, we have to let people know that that wedding episode, Jamie and Claire's wedding episode, was one of the highest TV ratings this year. Um, in, and it's, a, I think it was number 18 of all the TV episodes or something was uh, uh, Jamie and Claire's Not wedding. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was just, yeah. so everybody is, is watching it. And, um, and, and, yeah, and so we have the pout manders and the and the drought manders and the drought land and everything waiting for April. But it does give people who are just kind of finding out a chance to catch up and then join back with everybody in in April as well. The audiobooks are also very, very popular. I know Davina Porter is is the voice of that. Did did, did you have any um, did, did you audition her? Did you listen to tapes of audio narrators? No, uh, no. I mean, what would I know about finding a narrative uh, actor or actor? No, the recorded books people who produce the audio books are uh, very talented. They have a number of really, really good actors that they use for different projects. Uh, Davina does read other things. <laughs> she's kind enough to say that, that the Outlander books are amongst her favorites. But yes, she's a spectacular. She's half Scottish herself and is married to a Scot, so you know the accents have never been at all a problem. But she has just fantastic emotional range and. Uh, and does just wonderful voices for both male and female. Yeah, she she did a really great job of of portraying that. I, I had a question that was sent to me this week by one of your fans, and and they want to know in the drum the drums of autumn, the names of the characters who associated with Jocasta's plantation were from Greek mythology, and was there any special reason that you gave them that those names? Oh, it's uh, it's more or less just historical, cultural authenticity, you might say. Um, in the second half of the 18th century, it was there was a lot of fascination with the ancient civilizations of Roman and, uh, and Greece and so forth. And you know, any educated young man and you know, some educated young women uh, were taught uh, you know, automatically to speak Greek and Latin and to read it and so forth. And the Jocasta comes from a you know. A, a rather educated family. The Mackenzies of Leoch, you know, were not cheapskates. So she was well-educated and, of course, married a man of that uh, that ilk as well, common for people to be given uh, Roman or, or uh, Greek names. And uh, that uh, extended to the, not only to Jocasta herself, but, to, of course, to some of her servants. It was just, you know, that, that that was kind of the names that were floating around in the culture. You know, it was like Asher and Madison and so forth are today. It was just, you know, not exactly trendy, but, you know, you you looked high class if you had Greek, Greek names on, on your service. Well, I do think that there's going to be a rise in little boy baby names to Sam. That's, I, I, I do think that. I think we're going to start seeing more Sams because Sam's so popular. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of little boy Sams in the near future. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good name, you know. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it worked for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about for a minute the Seattle Outlander retreat because that was such a huge success. There's so many Scots in the Pacific Northwest, so many Outlander fans. It was sold out. I knew people personally who were huge Outlander fans that didn't get a ticket. And but the people I did talk to who were able to go absolutely loved it. Are you going to be doing more retreats around the country in the future? 
Well, I don't know. Uh, that was entirely the brainchild of the Random House publicity people, and they had a fabulous time doing it. Uh, they really, really enjoyed it, and it was, as you say, a huge success and marvelous. But, you know, uh, it's not as though you just go out holding those for no good reason. Uh, it, is, it was the kickoff to a major league book tour, and we do book tours only when a new book is out. Uh, the point of a book tour is... Well, it's partly to increase sales, but you won't increase sales overall that much. What a book tour is it uh, coagulates your sales into uh, one or two uh, weeks up front, which will drive your book uh, higher up the New York Times list and place to number one. So, uh, so you know, with, with a, a future book, they might well do something like that again, since this one was so successful. Or, you know, they might think of something else, or you know, I might be too old to actually understand much more of this. Uh, this was a grueling summer. I did three book tours of the, the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. And we also did a lot of um, PR for the show with a dual premiere and things like that. A lot of popular book series now kind of have these off brandings going on, which we have the Game of Thrones, Fifty Shades Wine. I'm wondering if Outlander is going to have its own scotch someday. I wouldn't be at all surprised, but that's kind of up to the Sony Corporation. They, as a result of this weird five-sided contract we have, Stars is the American uh, network that is producing the show. They are actually responsible, and therefore they uh, own the distribution rights to the U.S., but Sony Corporation owns rights to the show overall, so they are the ones who do the licensing to individual countries. I think they said it's been sold in 87 countries so far, which is amazing, but uh, they also have the merchandising rights, uh, so they run this little Outlander store, which I actually have not had time to inspect very thoroughly, but they are responsible for you know generating uh, a lot of this, this uh, off-brand merchandise you might say. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm married to a Scot, and his father was directly from Scotland. And I know that all good Scots love their scotch. And so I thought with that, I bet we wouldn't, you know, we, we might see that sometime in the future, which would be, would be just surprised. a great accompaniment to watching and reading. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we went to, uh, Ron and I went to uh, Los Angeles for their screenings week, you know, to, for, to do, you know, promotion for the show to the international community. And they had these VIP dinners, as they were called, every evening where we'd go and schmooze with people from, you know, the BBC or France TV and so forth. And uh, they were serving wine at these events, which was labeled as Black Sales and it had been done as promotion for one of Star's other shows. So if they have Black Sales wine, I don't see why they can't have Outlander Scotch. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, the fandom, when you're listening, we need to push that idea because first off, I mean, it's a no brainer. And second, who doesn't love that stuff? And you could put it in Manhattans, which is my drink of choice. And so there's so many possibilities. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. What's your guilty pleasure? Um, I'm not sure. I never felt guilty about any of my pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I suppose you could say chocolate. <laughs> I, don't, I don't normally eat it quick set, but then again, it depends on what kind of chocolate there is. I mean, Christmas marshmallow walnut fudge, you know, no limits. <laughs> All that sounds good. Has has the TV adaptation, it's kind of now thrust you more into kind of the Hollywood spotlight and has it has it changed very much your your routine as you've kind of had to shift into that light 
Um, not really. Uh, what it is, for the most part, is just more interviews, <laughs> and uh, the interviews are mostly focused on the show with, you know, the sorts of questions you've been asking me. What do I think of the adaptation? You know, what about the actors? Did you see the auditions? Etc. You know, how's that all going? And, you know, of course, I can t- talk about that all day. Uh, but, you know, it's pretty much the same sort of interview I do for the books and have done all along. It's just that as the show has increased our visibility, there's a heck of a lot more of it. Uh, and also as a result of the show increasing the visibility of the books, we have uh, new and larger publishing deals in various countries. So I get this constant uh, influx of requests for uh, not only for interviews, but, you know, would you write a brief essay for this? Can you write a sidebar for that? Can you write an introduction for this? Um, and, you know, some of that's fun. Some of it is just work, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a lot more of it than there used to be. Is is basically it, but it's a difference in the quantity rather than type. Mm-hmm. Oh, the only Hollywood sorts of things. When we were doing the premieres and we were on the road for a week in between the two premieres doing um, – PR here and there. Well, actually, we're only in San Diego and in New York, but we were doing two or three days of PR in both places. And uh, so they would have a makeup suite at the hotel, you know, with two or three makeup artists working at the same time. And they'd give you your time, and you were supposed to show up at the makeup suite, and uh, it would be done over for the day. And believe me, when you've been made up professionally, that stuff lasts all day. <laughs> it's hard to get it off. And, uh, but yeah, so that was the main uh, difference for me is just, you know, being professionally done every single day. Because normally I would just, you know, apply a very bare modicum of makeup if I knew I was going to be photographed. Otherwise, I don't wear it. Uh, and, you know, clothes, I, I have public clothes and I have work clothes. I work usually in jeans and a sweatshirt. But, uh, but you know, if you're going out in public, you know, you're doing a lunch and you're doing a, you know, an in-person interview with pictures and so forth. I've got, you know, show clothes. These are the fairly flamboyant things. I buy most of them in Santa Fe. Uh, and, you know, they're like vivid colors and jewel tones and, you know, sort of flowing things because they pack easily, you know, you shake them out. Also something like that, photographs really well at almost any angle. Whereas if you're wearing something fitted, you know, you're turned the wrong way. You're going to look really strange. <laughs> Unless you're mm-hmm. like, of course, it looks fabulous from every <laughs> <laughs> No, you know, that's that's got to be the, the, the hardest part probably of being a well-known figure is not everybody snapping pictures of you and posting them online. And, and you don't have any editorial control over what people <laughs> post. And so <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, you try to look as good as you can when you go out because it's certainly going to show up all over the Internet. But, you know, fortunately, I look pretty much the same all of the time. You know, that is... Um, Almost every picture taken of me smiling with a fan over a book looks just the same. I mean, the fans are different, but I'm not. It's just a matter of what color am I wearing. There's there's small differences as to the the style of each costume and so forth. I'm usually only visible from the the mid-chest up because I'm sitting at a cafe height signing table. Yeah. Are are, are you looking forward to getting back with the cast um, and and filming? And and, and are are they filming right now? Has, Has that begun again? Well, no, they were filming this last week in Scotland. They were doing pickups and reshoots of, you know, small bits and pieces for the various episodes that have already been done. They concluded the filming for the first season at the end of September and then, you know, took a a brief break. And uh, now the production team has been gearing up for the last month, uh, breaking script, as they call it. That means going through the book, pulling out every single line of dialogue so they can use as much of the original dialogue as they can. And then, you know, uh, 
they have this huge whiteboard in the writer's room where they move these magnetic strips around with, you know, plot points written on them. And so they, this is how they adjust their flow and decide, you know, where can we break this story for this episode, you know, and, and what can we fit in this episode and so forth. And then the writers, you know, uh, choose episodes that they particularly want to work on. And uh, it's a very collaborative effort, even though each writer will be solely responsible for the, at least the original content of his or her episodes. So it's very, um, very, very interesting process to watch. Well, Scotland acts like they really embraced this process. They're proud of Outlander. They own it. Um, mm-hmm. They love you so much. Um, I'm, I'm sure they've have to make you an honorary citizen. This Gallic language, these tribal languages are starting, you know, people are very interested in that and interested in kilt making. You were a huge part of this renaissance that the Scottish already felt this pride. It's like when you know your baby's cute, but then other people tell you like, oh, your baby Mm -hmm. is really cute. You know, we're not just telling you that. You really shine this light on Scotland that they have this pride that, that they really felt like they knew, but other people weren't appreciating. And you doing that, um, I, I think just drove that love for you even, even further. And they've just been so happy about everything that Outlanders brought to Scotland and to the Scots. Pleased at the the response of Scotland first to the books and then out of the show, but yes, they're you know, tremendously enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. When you go over there, do do they recognize you? Are are you recognizable to them? Oh, not just on the street. <laughs> if I'm going to be appearing somewhere, you know, they go because they're expecting to see me. And if they have, in fact, seen me in person at an event, then they'll recognize me later, you know, if I'm wandering around on the street or something like that. But it doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen often in the U.S. for similar reasons. You know, I'm, I'm really, relatively small and inconspicuous. People normally don't... Um, you know, look at me unless I am acting like I want to be looked at. I mean, actors do this instinctively, but I've, I've learned to do it over the years. You know, I, um, there's a way of, of being invisible in public, and then there's a way of making people look at you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I'm not making people look at me, normally they don't. The people at my grocery store all know who and what I am. So, you know, that they, but, you know, they're all friendly. They've known me for years and years. I was in there the other day, and somebody popped out of the little bank that is, is part of the grocery store. So oh, I just wanted to tell you how much I love the show. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so thank you. And then, but, you know, not to any huge or intrusive extent. <laughs> I heard another author talk about they had uh, tweeted out that they were at a grocery store and a fan came up and handed them a script or something. They tracked them down and they're like, they said, I I saw them on Twitter saying, I won't be telling when I'm at the grocery store until I've left the grocery store. They were very nice, but I don't, I can't help you with scripts. Yeah, no, no, you uh, mostly don't unless you're someplace inaccessible. <laughs> you know, I was out with my husband fishing on on Monday afternoon. <laughs> so, you know, had had my phone been working, the battery was dead. But that had been working. You know, I might have tweeted a picture of me with my first striped bass. <laughs> because, you know, nobody could find me on the lake anyway. <laughs> but to know exactly. you don't normally tell people where you are. <laughs> Will Outlander be back at Comic-Con this year, do you know? Totally don't know. That's up to uh, stars. Mm-hmm. They were in some, some. They were questioning to some extent whether they should go to the October Comic Con in New York, and finally decided against it because it was so near. And, yeah, they were wrapping up filming, doing post production, and things like that. And everybody had just finished and was exhausted. So 
for them to go to a large Comic-Con like that with cast members and production people and all that means shutting down the entire production, which is, you know, many, many thousands of dollars to shut it down for a week and start up again. So they will only do, you know, mass events for very specific things. Uh, they may be doing something at the, for the Television Critics Association again this uh, this January, but I don't know that. Before I let you go, <clears throat> I have to ask you about Sam. Is there anything that you can tell the fans about Sam? Because they all, you you know how much that they love Sam. I mean, there's Sam everything, so all kinds of Sam. He's branched off into his own fan club. Um, yeah. People just <laughs> love him. What really? tell fans more about Sam? <laughs> Oh, let's see. Well, the curls are natural. He's got very, very curly hair. In fact, about the second thing I said to him was, man, you have the most exuberant hair. But uh, uh, it's, it's very thick and it's very curly, and he is a natural blonde. Uh, I had seen earlier pictures of him in his, in his natural state. He looks really strange. But I saw one of him coming back from his Mexican vacation a week or so ago. <laughs> and, uh, direct messaged him, and I said, it's the chair for you, Goldilocks, the salon chair, I mean, because See, it takes a long time to achieve the proper shade of red that will photograph well against the vivid greens of Scotland. And to do it the first time, it took seven tries and 27 hours in a salon chair. And you know, he's naturally a very, very active man, and he just hates having his hair done. <laughs> a typical man. Well, will you have a cameo in any of the Outlander TV episodes? Oh, I don't know. It's it's entirely up to the production and writers. If they'd like me to do it, I'd be happy to. I enjoyed the first one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you you wouldn't be opposed to to popping up here or there. Oh no, no. If uh, if they would like me to do that, I'd be more than pleased to do it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us today. I was up all night. I, I jumped up at one thirty in the morning to go write down some more notes, and I thought about you. I thought I I, I wonder. If if she has a jump up in the middle of the night, how do you not wake up your husband? And and uh, I and I was thinking if he wasn't in this bed, I could turn the light on. And so I was a little mad at him, but I thought, well, no, I'm the one that needs to be <laughs> respectful. Yeah. And I dashed into the other room and wrote down some more some more notes uh, to be able to talk to you about. And so I, I really really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Wonderful job, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I personally, I work in the middle of the night from midnight to 4.30 a.m. It's my prime writing time. So there's not no real problem about waking my husband up. <laughs> but he well, I should have called you. <laughs> yeah, we should have done it then. Yeah. Uh, it's been lovely. Uh, and has uh, been great to talk to you and really enjoyed your questions. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed having you on. I really looked forward to this. Your fandom is just amazing, and you should be really, I'm sure you are really proud of them. Outlander on Stars TV returns on uh, on April 4th, I believe, with eight more episodes, and people can catch up now, and they can... I mean, all you have to do is put in Outlander and Facebook or Twitter and everything. More Outlander than you can ever imagine will pop up and all of your questions will be answered. And you're very accessible to your fans and, and the media. And I certainly really appreciate that. And um, I, I just can't thank you enough. So, but, but I will thank you one more time. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> All right, and we're going to play real quick Jeffrey Castle. He's from Seattle, and this is his Sword and Shield, and I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
come here with things Difficult as it is to keep the faith In the end this land I will defend So I can come back to you one day Yeah. Uh-huh. 